I want to invite you to open up your Bibles today to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, we're going to be in verse 1 here in just a second as we continue through the text. Um, as you're turning there, I just want to do a couple of housekeeping things. Uh, one, I don't know if you can see from here or you can tell, or, um, but I, a couple of weeks ago, got braces. And so um, I won't bore you with why I had to get braces, but I did get them. And so um, just once you know, I'm in pain and I'm spitting a lot uh, during my sermon. So please forgive me for that um, if I drool or something like that. Um, two, next week is Easter where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, which is pretty cool. Yeah, you can clap for that. That's kind of a big deal. Uh, Jesus conquering death is a big deal. Next week, we're going to be at the Irwin Center, which is a lot of fun. If you've never been to one of our Easter's at the Irwin Center, you get the entire body of Christ at the Austin Stone in one place and one time, all going crazy, singing and uh, proclaiming and celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. That's pretty neat. I uh, want to let you know a couple things that are going on. I, 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 what time does it start? Anybody know what time it start? 1030? I better find out. Anyway, y'all should too. I'm sure they'll have an announcement. They'll tell me where I need to be. But uh, get there early. Last year we had 15,000 people there plus. And if we grow the number of people this year that we did last year, we're going to have to turn people away. So don't roll up there five minutes before the service starts like you do here. Because <laughs> you will not have a place to sit. And so get there early. Bring people that don't know the Lord. It's, uh, we always, always, the last couple of years and the years in the past, we always have people trust in Jesus as their Lord and Savior in these services. It's going to be a gospel presentation. It's going to be really good. So invite your friends, get there early. And I believe it's this Thursday, um, Campus Pastor will tell you more about it, but we're going to be fasting together as a church. I want to encourage you to do that because we don't want to go and show up in the Irwin Center on Easter Sunday morning and just be another worship service. We really want God to show up in power and, uh, and God inhabits the praises and the prayer of his people. And so we're going to go after the Lord this week and ask him to do something special. So we'll tell you more about that in, uh, in a few minutes. Um, over the last 20 years of my ministry, I've been in the, the ministry close to 20 years. Um, I have found that the topic that we're looking at today is probably one of the most difficult ones to preach on um, of anything I've ever preached on. And, uh, and that's divorce. It's intellectually difficult. And, and what I mean by that is answering the question under what circumstances can a person get divorced um, or remarried, or even if they can get divorced or remarried, is not black and white in the scripture. And, uh, and if anybody stands up in a pulpit somewhere and tells you it's black and white in the scripture, they're wrong and they don't know what you're talking about. All right, and so it's just, it's intellect. I've been studying this thing for 10 years in depth, trying to get to uncover every rock. It's just not super straightforward in the Bible, and you'll see what I'm talking about here in a minute. Um, two is the subject of divorce is socially difficult. When you start looking honestly at the scripture, one of the things you realize very quickly is that divorce is a really big deal to God. It's a really big deal. And yet there are tons of us in the room that have either had divorce or been impacted by divorce. And so when you really just start looking honestly at, at just how serious of a thing this is to the Lord, you just, it, it hurts. You feel the weight of it. And, um, and so here's what I want to do today. I just want to speak to those of you who, one, are either considering divorce or um, you've been through one. I just want to talk to you for a second. As we walk through the scripture together, um, if you hear something that maybe you've never heard before or you hear something that you disagree with, I think the temptation 
it's going to be for you to get mad at me or to, or to tune me out. And, and um, I just want to encourage you, if, if you find yourself disagreeing or struggling or, or whatever, just hang in there with me. Fight that temptation and engage in the scripture. Um, we're going to look at some difficult passages in the scripture, and I'm going to come pretty hard on the subject. And, and I'm doing that, not to beat you up, I'm doing that because I know that you would want me to bring this in the most honest way I could so that other people will not have to go through what you've been through. I know that about you. And so know that I'm not coming after you. There's tons of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And so just keep that in mind as we go through this today. Um, but the culture, in my opinion, has swung too far. Uh, uh, the pendulum has swung too far towards it being just kind of laid back in our view of divorce. And we need to look at God's view today. So let's read this together. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. We're going through the text. Um, it says, and he left, he left there and went to a region of Judea and beyond the Jordan and the crowds gathered him again, talking about Jesus. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them and said, what did Moses command you? And then they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, because of the hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now this was Jesus teaching on divorce. Now here's what we're going to do in the next few minutes is we're going to start by looking at what is absolutely clear in the scripture in, in regards to divorce. And that is God's view of marriage and God's view of divorce. All right, whether or not a person can divorce, whether or not a person can remarry is debatable in the scripture, but how God views marriage and how he thinks about marriage and how God views divorce and how God views divorce is without debate in the scripture. And so that's what we're going to see today. And then once we look at God's view of marriage and God's view of divorce, then, then the hope is that we would let the application of that in our lives flow out of what God's view is. And that's what we do as Christians, amen? We see how God views something and then we apply it based on how God views a certain thing. So let's start today by asking the question, what is God's view of marriage? What is God's view of marriage? Now, in, in the words that Jesus just spoke, there are three things that we learn about how God views divorce and marriage in the text. And so let's go through them. Let's read them together. Mark chapter 10, verse 2. So the Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them and said, what did Moses <coughs> command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, listen, because of the hardness of your heart, he wrote this commandment. So the Pharisees come up, they're trying to test him, they say, hey, Jesus, is it cool if we divorce people, because, or divorce our wives, our husbands? Moses said it was okay. And then Jesus responds and says, I need you to understand something. The reason, reason that Moses did that was because of the hardness of your heart. 
And so the first thing we really see here is that divorce is something that God did not design and intend, but a divorce really is a result of sin. It's the first thing Jesus tells us is that divorce is a result of the fact that we had hard hearts and we refused to submit to God's plan and view and purpose of marriage. And because our hearts were hard and because they weren't soft and submissive to God's plan, Moses allowed it. And then Jesus comes in and says, from the beginning, that was never the intention of God. And then he, and he talks about what the intention of God is in the beginning. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Okay, then therefore, as a result, every time you see the word therefore, you have to look at what is therefore. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother... Hold fast, that word right there means to cleave, it means to join, it means to submit. It's a very strong word in the Greek, to be bound permanently together. He shall leave his father and his mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, and they are no longer two, but one flesh. So first thing Jesus says, there's like a miracle that happens when you get married, is that God takes two people and forms them into one. And it's the only time in history that happens. Every other time in history when one plus one, you add them together, it equals two. But here, one plus one equals one. Jesus says that God joins you together into this one flesh union. And then in verse nine, he says, what therefore God has joined together, you don't separate. And so there's a couple of things we see there in the text. One, Jesus is making it clear is that God is the inventor of marriage. God is the creator of marriage. God is the architect of marriage. And it's critical that we understand that. Man did not institute, or rather man did not think up the institution of marriage. God did. Man did not design the institution of marriage. God did. Man did not define the institution of marriage. But God did. And in light of that, we need to be careful because if God has defined marriage, we cannot redefine marriage. And, but that's another sermon for another day. But the point is this, the point is this, God was the inventor, God was the creator, God was the architect of this thing we call marriage. All right, now, The third thing we see from this text is something powerful is that not only is God the inventor and the architect and the designer of the institution of marriage, but God is actually, listen to this, God is actually the one who creates and forms this binding, cleaving covenant thing going on between the husband and the wife on the day of the wedding. That's what Jesus just said. Is that when you and your husband or you and your wife or or those of you that will be married one day, when you stand at the altar, the two of you become one flesh. You cleave together. And what Jesus said is that God is the one that is binding you together. The pastor is not the one forming you into one flesh union. Uh, the, The justice of the peace is not the one joining you together in a one flesh covenant union. You and your husband or your wife are not the ones joining you together in a one flesh covenant union. Jesus said it is God that is joining you together in that one flesh covenant union. And that is why Jesus says what God has joined together. Let no man break up or separate. And so we need to understand that when you get divorced, you're breaking apart something that God, God 
put together. Okay? So, so far, divorce is a result of sin. Jesus says that. Two, God is the inventor and the architect, the designer and the definer of what marriage is. Three, God is the one, not us, but God is the one that joins us together at the altar. Now, that brings us to the question. Why did God create marriage? Why did he do this? Why did, why did God take a man and a woman and create this one flesh union that Jesus says is never to be broken apart? Why did he do that? And getting the answer to that question goes a long way in helping us understand how God feels about divorce when we understand why God created this one flesh union, Jesus said you can't break up. Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, if you want to turn there, Ephesians 5, exactly why God created this one flesh union that Jesus says you can't break up. In Ephesians 5, verse 31, you've heard me teach this before, but we need to be reminded of it. Ephesians 5, 31, Paul quotes Genesis. He quotes Jesus here. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast cleave to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. Now watch what he says in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. Now we breeze over that when reading through the text. We don't know what it means, but let me tell you what it means. Anytime you see mystery in the scripture, especially in the New Testament, it's referring to something that has been hidden, but now is being revealed. It means a truth that has been hidden but now is being revealed. And Paul begins when he, he quotes this, this uh, God creating and designing this first marriage. And then he starts the next sentence by saying, hey, this is a mystery. There is a meaning to this that's been hidden. And by the way, it is profound, he says. And then he takes the lid off of the mystery in verse 32. He says, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul says, you know what this whole thing's been about from the very beginning? God created, invented, designed to find this thing called marriage so it would be a picture of God's unbreakable, never-ending, unalterable, extravagant covenant of love for you and me, the church, through Jesus Christ. It's crystal clear in the scripture. Paul says marriage is a picture of God's unbreakable love for us the church, okay? He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his life. Why, if the two shall become one flesh, this is a profound mystery, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God did not primarily create marriage for your happiness. And that's what the world thinks it's all about. It's not. Hopefully you will be happy when you get married. I'm just saying, I hope you are. If you do it right, you will. Maybe. Um, God did not primarily create marriage for your companionship, even though that's part of it. God primarily, the scripture says it, not me, I'm not making this up. The scripture says that the primary picture of why God created marriage, the primary reason is to display to the world his unbreakable love. For us. So when you get married, you and your husband, you and your wife, you get married, you're walking around and living your life by the way that you love each other. God invented it so that by the way that you love each other, you can show the world this is what God's love looks like. It's unbreakable. It never ends. It never fails. Okay? So here's the question. In light of what marriage 
represents. In light of why God created marriage, and in light of, of what he designed it to display, this never-ending, unbreakable picture of God's love, how do you think God views divorce? It's a picture of the gospel. Marriage is a little physical picture of the gospel. How do you think God feels about divorce? Well, Malachi tells us exactly how he feels about divorce in Malachi 2.13. Just listen. He says, this is another thing you do. This is God speaking. He says, this is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. And so God says here, he says, look, I, I get that you're bringing all these, you know, offerings to me and, and you're crying and you're covering the altar with tears, but I want you to know I'm not even regarding it anymore, these, these offerings, I'm not accepting them with favor in the morning anymore. And you think, why in the world would God not accept an offering of his people? And in verse 14 he says, yet you say, for what reason? Here's why, because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. You see that? God, God's saying, look, you came together here, and when you came together, you didn't just get married. You entered into a covenant that I, I formed. And But no one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. God says, people with the Spirit don't do this. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. Let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Here it is, verse 16. God says, for I hate divorce. Says the Lord, the God of Israel. He says, I hate divorce. Now God does not say, I have a problem with divorce. God doesn't say, I advise against divorce. It's not the best course of action God, the Lord, God of Israel, he said, I hate it. I hate it. Now, let's, let's just stop for a second and let's dwell on that word and get our minds around the language here because the word hate does not mean much to us. The word hate to us just means we strongly dislike something. People have been asking me for the last week or so, Matt, how do you feel about your braces? And I say, I hate them, right? <laughs> I hate them. You, maybe you, you've heard yourself say, I hate my chemistry class or or I hate my roommate, or I hate my job. It, it doesn't mean what it means when God says the word hate. For us, it means strong dislike. In the Old Testament, when the word hate is, is thrown out there, it's almost always in reference to an enemy. Either an enemy of Israel or an enemy of God. And so you need to understand that when, when God says that statement, I hate Divorce, what he's saying is divorce is my enemy. You have brought, I've brought you, I have formed you into this covenant union, this picture of my never-ending love for, uh, for the church through Jesus Christ. You have broken it apart. What I joined together, God says, I want you to know when I see that I hate that. That is my enemy right there. Now, why would God say that divorce is his enemy? Why would he use such strong language? We don't use that kind of language. Why, why does God use that kind of language? Here's the answer. Again, when a man and a woman who are representatives of his unbreakable, never-ending love for us end the marriage, what kind of picture does that paint of God's love? 
What message does that send if we are his representatives? What message does that send? The message that it sends is that God's covenantal love for us can end. We are the representatives. It's it's clear in scripture. And so when we break it apart, it sends the message to the world that, that God's covenantal love can be broken. And the scripture says, God says, I hate that message. It's contrary to the gospel. It's a perversion of the gospel. If the gospel is through Jesus, my love for you can never end or never fail. Divorce is a perversion of that picture. And God says, I hate it. So God's view of marriage, the application of all this, again, it's debatable, sort of, but how God views marriage and how God views divorce is absolutely without debate. And so what we're going to do for the rest of our time here today in just the next few minutes is let's, let's try to apply this the best we can. The first thing I want to do is I want to talk to college students, singles, anybody who's not married. Um, I think in light of God's view of marriage, in light of his view of divorce, there's a couple things we need to think about. One is that before you get married, you need to be absolutely certain that God's view of marriage is your view of marriage. You just, you just need to take some time before you get married, whether you're engaged or you want to get engaged, you need to take some time and you need to pray and get your mind around this. You need to know why God created marriage. And before you ever do it, you need to ask the Lord to change your heart and say, God, you give me the view of marriage that you have. Before I enter into this thing, let me know deep down in my heart and be convicted of what it is that I represent. All right, that needs to happen. Do not take that lightly, right? Because the moment you get married, you become a picture of God's never-ending, unbreakable love for his bride, the church. And that ought to flip you out just a little bit, you know? That ought to get your attention if you believe the Bible. I get the biggest kick out of doing weddings because I always ask the groom right before we walk out that question. Every time. So if I do your wedding, that you can be prepared. Here's what I do. Right before we walked out, and, and the groomsmen are always messing around that time. But anyway, I tell them on the show, and I go, hey, bro. You remember what we talked about, what marriage means? He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, you know how you, you become a picture of God's unbreakable, never-ending covenant love for the church? You're supposed to love your wife like Christ loved the church no matter what? <laughs> and I was like, are, and I asked him this, I was like, are you scared? Are you afraid? And, and 99 times out of 100, those, those knuckleheads go, no, no, I'm not afraid, I'm not scared. And I always remember that scene from Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, when Yoda (laughs) Yoda's looking at Luke, who's about to go fight Darth Vader for the first time, and Yoda says, hey, you're about to go fight Darth Vader. It's a big deal. Are you scared? And then Luke Luke Skywalker looks at him and he's like, no, I'm not scared. And the Yoda starts shaking his stick at him and says, you will be, right? (laughs) You will be. And that's what I want to look at him and say, if you knew what you were getting into, you would be scared, right? And I'm, I'm kind of kidding, but I'm kind of not. When Jesus, when Jesus comes and he's talking to the disciples, and I didn't, th- didn't want to preach on this because it takes a while, but here's the thing. Short version of the story, Jesus describes this to the disciples. Hey, this is what marriage really means. Uh, it's a picture of a covenant, what God joined together. You don't break apart. Then the disciples, you remember what their response was? The, response, the disciples said, well, if that's the case, it's better not to get married. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, no, it's really good. Go ahead and get married. It's great. You'll make it. Jesus just says, you're right, and walks off. Right? 
You got to get to that place. You understand what it represents and come to terms with that. All right? Also, in light of this, you need to make certain that the person that you marry has that same view of marriage. It would be the biggest mistake of your life to marry someone that doesn't have God's view of marriage. Because, see, what would happen is that because you know, because you know what God's view of marriage is and his purpose of marriage, you will desire to glorify God. You'll desire to display God. Uh, you'll desire to be a picture of God. And, and, and even when, the, when times get incredibly difficult, you won't break the thing up. You'll fight for your marriage no matter what, even if you're unhappy because you understand what the picture of marriage represents. But the person who's a non-believer or a person who doesn't have or isn't convicted about God's view of marriage, when things get really, really difficult and it's not comfortable or fun for them or, or whatever it is, if it's not, doesn't turn out what they thought it was going to be, then, then they'll just roll. Or if somebody better comes along, they'll just roll. I've seen it. A hundred times in my ministry. I, I just, stupid illustration here, but there was a movie that came out about four or five years ago called He's Just Not That Into You. And um, it's a dumb movie. And um, it's dumb. But anyway, it, it does a great job of summing up the world's view of marriage. There's this interaction, I don't remember who said it or whatever. There's this direct quote here. It says, what if you meet the love of your life, but you're already married to somebody else? Should you just let that person pass you by you know to be honest with you that's a great question if you're not saved if, if the whole point of you getting married if the highest value of you getting married is you being happy and being fulfilled and happy in life that is a really pointed and good question what if you're married but the love of your life comes along it's a great question but if you understand if you understand why God created marriage and what it is that it represents, and that is an absolutely ridiculous question. And you realize the love of your life is the one that you married. And you're to spend the rest of your life displaying the love of Christ, the unending, unbreakable covenant love to them, no matter who comes in your path. Married people, let's talk to you for a second. What if you're unhappy in your marriage? You're unhappy. It's not turning out the way you thought it was. People change, whatever. It's just not turning out the way you thought. Your husband or your wife has not committed adultery. You're just, it's just not working out. Um, is it okay to get divorced um, because you know that God will forgive you? Right, I've heard that one a ton. Matt, I'm just not happy. This is not everything I thought it was going to be. It's a different person than I thought I was marrying. I'm going to get divorced, and hey, I know God will forgive me. Listen, if that's where you're at, you need to understand something. A believer would never make that statement or they would never make it for long. Here's the thing. If you're saying, I'm going to intentionally sin because I know God will forgive me, you need to understand, you need to know a person indwelt with the Spirit of God cannot continually walk in that. The Spirit of God won't let them. The Spirit of God glorifies Christ. That's what he does. He doesn't glorify us. He doesn't glorify you. The Spirit of God exalts Jesus. And if he's in you, he won't let you walk in that. Oh, I'm going to just sin because I know God will forgive me. That is not what believers do. Believers don't use the blood of Jesus as excuse and license to sin. 
believers, the mark of a believer because of the spirit of God is a person that's, that's running away from sin, not running to sin. Okay? Just put that, just think about that. All right? Two, and this is a little bit harder and I want you to hang with me all the way here because this is a tough one, what I'm about to talk about. Might I hear God's view of marriage and I hear about his view of divorce and I believe it and I get it and I'm for that and I want to demonstrate that but I'm in an abusive marriage. Abusive physically, abusive emotionally, verbally, whatever. You're in an abusive marriage. Can you get divorced? And first of all, let me say, I want you to understand that I get that that's probably one of the most difficult circumstances that life can offer. I've not been in that situation, but I kind of get it. And I'm I'm sorry from the bottom of my heart. But, But here's the thing. If that's where you're at, if you're in an abusive relationship, can I get divorced is probably not the first question you need to be asking yourself in light of what marriage means, in light of what it represents, in light of the fact that God created it to be a picture of the world, of his unbreakable, never-ending covenant love for us through Jesus Christ, the first question you need to be asking yourself is, God, how can I display the love of Christ in this really bad situation? Now, that doesn't mean you stay in an abusive situation. You absolutely separate, 100% get out of that situation, especially in a physically abusive situation. Get the kids out. Get the church involved. But as you do, you remain abstinent. You remain faithful to that person. And you pray like crazy that God would restore the marriage, that God would save that person, heal that person, so that you can continue displaying what it is that God joined you together to display. And so Matt, can I get divorced in that situation? Here's how I would counsel you. I would say that the scripture does not say what you are to do in that situation apart from loving them, apart from loving them. And I would encourage you and counsel you to make your decision in light of God's view of marriage and divorce. Last one here. Matt, my husband's cheated on me. My wife's cheated on me. In light of Matthew 19, can I get divorced? Well, this is, when it gets, this is when it gets complicated, all right? Let me read Matthew 19, verse 8 to you, because Jesus gives what people refer to as the sexual immorality clause, all right? In verse nine, chapter 19, verse 8, and he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. Verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for, the, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. All right, so Jesus says that if you divorce your wife or your husband and you remarry, you commit adultery, except in the case of sexual immorality. Now listen, here's the thing. In Matthew 19, and this is where all the debate is happening in Christian circles. In Matthew 19, Jesus gives this morality clause, the sexual morality clause. He says, hey, if uh, your your husband is sexually immoral, you can divorce him and get remarried. A couple of problems with this by just taking it literally, which most pastors, because they don't want to offend people, is what they do. A couple of problems with taking that literally. One is that word there in the Greek is not adultery. The word there in the Greek is sexual immorality, which is a blanket statement for all sexual sin. And so if you take the word literally, if you take the sentence literally here, what Jesus is literally saying is that, hey, if your husband commits any sexual sin whatsoever, he has a two-second lustful thought, it's okay for you to divorce him. That's what it means. 
And so you just, you start in light of God's view of marriage and God, God, in light of God's view of divorce, you're like, whoa, that, that seems a little weird to me that Jesus would say that. Here, here's another thing where the debate comes in is that in all the other gospels, including when Paul talks about divorce, the immorality clause is not in there. In the other gospels, Jesus says, hey, if you get divorced and you get remarried, commit adultery. You get divorced, you get remarried, you commit adultery. You get divorced, you get remarried, commit adultery. Paul says, don't get divorced. Don't get divorced. And only in Matthew do you see this immorality clause in there. Hermeneutics 101. If you take a hermeneutics class, which is a fancy word for how to study the Bible in seminary, the first thing they're going to teach you on the first day is biblical interpretation. And here's the thing. When you're interpreting scripture, they teach you always interpret the one verse in light of the many. You never interpret the many verses in light of the one when they're talking about the same subject. And so for us to believe that Jesus is saying it's okay to divorce in the midst of of sexual morality, you have to break hermeneutics 101. And so that's when it gets funny and gets debatable. And there's, so what does it mean then, Matt? Why, why did he say that? Well, again, it's tough, but there's a lot of theologians that believe what I'm about to say. Dr. Popper is one, John Popper. Um, Holly himself believes this. Some folks that are our elders believe this. What I'm about to say, that they believe Matthew, because he was speaking to a Jewish audience, that Jesus was talking about betrothal right here in Matthew 19. He was talking about betrothal which is a fancy word for engagement in the Old Testament and the New Testament in, in, in Jewish culture. And back in the day, if, if your uh, person that you were betrothed to or engaged to was sexually immoral, you could divorce them. But they do not believe that it's referring to an actual divorce and breaking up of a covenant between two married people. Okay? That, that's, that's all the different stuff that that means. So, my husband cheated on me. My husband's addicted to pornography, whatever my wife cheated on me. Can I get divorced in light of Matthew 19? Here's what I would say to you. One, there is zero biblical evidence for divorce apart, or divorce and remarriage apart from sexual morality. Zero. There's no biblical evidence for it whatsoever. Okay, you just need to know that. When sexual morality is there, the biblical evidence for divorce is thin at best, okay? Again, you need to make your decision on the application in light of God's view of divorce. Now, last thing here, and we're done, is there is an overwhelming body of evidence in the scripture for you fighting for your marriage even in the midst of sexual morality. There's overwhelming evidence in the scripture of even if you're there, as much as it hurts, as much as it stinks, you still continue to fight and display the covenant love of God. There's a whole book of the Bible that talks about that right there. It's called the book of Hosea. God comes to this man, Hosea, and he says, there's a girl I want you to marry. And there's a problem, she's a prostitute. And so he does what God says. He goes and he marries this woman. And then after he marries this woman, she goes and she just starts cheating on him. Left and right goes all these other men. At one point in the story, she just completely leaves Hosea. She attaches herself to another man. She's sleeping with this other guy over and over and over again. And I want to ask you a question. If you're, if you're Hosea's best friend and, and, and you see this happening, your friend Hosea marries this girl who's a prostitute because he thinks he can change her, but she just continues and she's just sleeping with all these guys and leaves him. What advice would you be tempted to give your friend Hosea? 
I think the advice that you'd be tempted to give your friend Hosea would be the advice that I'm tempted when I have friends in that situation and I've had friends in that situation. The temptation is to go, man, this girl is no good. She keeps cheating on you. She's not going to change. She's cheated on you over and over and over again. Bro, just leave her. Move on. That's the temptation to give that advice, but there's just this one little problem. That's not the advice God gives Hosea. God looks at Hosea in his brokenness, and he's so hurt, and God looks at Hosea and says, Hosea, you go after her again. And if she cheats on you, you keep going after her. And you keep loving her, and you keep pursuing her, and you win that woman's heart no matter what it costs you, no matter how much it hurts. That's the story. That's the book of Hosea. So let me ask you this. Why is the book of Hosea in the Bible? Why, it's, why, is it, why is it in there? Why, why a story of a, of a prostitute that keeps cheating on a guy and God keeps saying, go after, go after, go after? Who does Hosea represent in that story? He represents Jesus. Who does the prostitute represent in that story? You. Me and you. The book of Hosea is a picture of God's unending pursuit of me and you, his prostitute bride, right? Yeah. Church, I've cheated on Jesus a thousand times with a thousand lovers, and he has never left me. You have cheated on Jesus a thousand times with a thousand lovers, and he has never left you. When you get married, that is the love you represent. That's the love you display. And if God forbid this were to happen to me, if Hosea's story were to happen to me, and by some insane reason my wife were to go do that or, or cheat on me or sleep with somebody else or leave me, I just want you to know that as much as that would hurt me, as difficult as it would be, as much as I would be tempted to walk away from it all, by the grace of God, I would go after her and I would pursue her for the rest of my life. Because that's what God's called me to do. If you're here today and, you, um, and you've messed this up already, um, I know you might be asking the question, is God angry with me in light of his view of marriage and divorce? Have, maybe you're asking, have I lost God's blessing on my life in view of his view of marriage and divorce? And the answer is, in Christ Jesus no, you have not lost his blessing. And no, he is not angry with you. In Romans 7, Paul said, I can't stop sinning. So who will save me from this body of sin and death? He says, thanks be to God, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you have failed in this area and you are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. Does he still love you? Does, does he value you and cherish you? The scripture says, yes. Paul says, for I'm convinced that neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor present nor future nor height nor death nor any created thing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And so I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've done. You are completely forgiven. You are completely loved. You are completely accepted by Jesus and by this church. We love you and we accept you. So what do you do if you're thinking about divorce or you've been divorced? I think, I think you just repent and just say, Lord, 
I have fallen short of your glory in this area, but I pray you'd forgive me and I pray you would give me the strength from this moment forward to display God's covenant love for the church through Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're in a marriage and it's difficult, I want you to fight for it. Jesus Christ is better. Jesus Christ is worth it. If you're here and you're not married, I would love to invite you as we pray to pray for your future spouse. Pray that not only God would do a great work in you and showing you what his view of marriage is, but that he would begin to do a great work in the heart of your future spouse. That he would begin to change him or her and see God's view of marriage. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the gospel. It is the gospel that is the reason that we do any of this. Why in the world, why in the world would we stay in a difficult marriage? And the answer is simple, Lord, because we have been difficult and yet you stay with us. We cheat on you every day, but you still come after us. And so, Lord, when people ask us, why in the world would you stay in this marriage? If it's difficult, we'd be able to say, because Jesus is worth it. And so, Lord, I just ask you now, by your spirit, you'd do a great work in us. you convict us where we sin. Those who aren't married would just begin to pray for their future spouses that you would do a great work in them. We ask these things today. In Jesus' name.